Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Stephen Cutler is a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's one of the world's leading experts on human performance, and his latest must-read book is The Art of Impossible. And today we're gonna discuss all things productivity, performance, and flow. Steven, welcome. Hey, Jason. It's good to be with you. So I love the book, The Art of Impossible. Big topic, big book. And we should rewind and start with your journey and the work you do at the Flow Research Collective. So can you explain to everyone what exactly it is you do? Yeah, I'm the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. We are a study the neurobiology of peak human performance. So what goes on in the brain and the body when we are performing at our absolute best. And we're a research and training organization. On the research side, we have partnerships with folks at USC and Stanford, Imperial College London, a couple of the places. And we study this stuff. And then on the training side, we take what we've learned on the science side and use it to work with everybody from kind of U.S. Special Forces through a lot of Fortune 100 CEOs and whatnot to uh, the general public. We train about a thousand people a month, which gives us both like the front end research and this enormous data set of did this shit work in the real world? So how do you define flow? I think so many of us are familiar with the concept. There's the famous book, Mahali. I can never pronounce his last name. Uh, How do you pronounce his last name? Okay, so I'll give you the phonetic, and you're going to laugh when you actually get it. It's Mihai. His first name is Mihai. I got the first name wrong, too. All Chick. Right. Chick sent me high. <laughs> so it's Mihai. Chick sent me high with an E at the very end of it. Uh, yes, that's how you pronounce his name. And the only reason I know this is because I once slaughtered his name on an NPR show. I was in Cleveland, Ohio. It was like my first book on flow and I destroyed his name. (laughs) Somebody called into the show and said, me hi, chick set me hi, you moron and hung up. Sounds very NPR. Our audience is a lot more forgiving here at my buddy green. (laughs) I was like, yep. Welcome to NPR. So, so how do you, so I think people are familiar with the, the concept, but I, let's give them a refresher. How do you define flow and what, and on the flip side, what, what are some misconceptions around what flow actually means? Great. So flow is scientifically defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best more specifically it's any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. You get so focused on the task at hand, so engaged with what you're doing. Everything else just seems to disappear. Your sense of self will get really quiet. Time will dilate, which is a fancy way of saying it passes strangely. Most of the time, it, it speeds up, and five hours pass by in five seconds. Sometimes it'll slow down. You get a freeze frame effect. Everything's been a car crash. And throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. So that's, that's sort of flow. The misconceptions are... First of all, flow is a spectrum of experiences. It's like anger, right? If you can be a little irked, you can be homicidally murderous. It's the same emotion. Flow is the same way. You can be in a state of micro flow. This is flow is scientifically, uh, psychologically defined by six core characteristics, some of which I mentioned complete concentration in the present moment, the vanishing of self, time dilation, a couple others. So they measure how many of these six show up at once. 
And if they, they can all show up at once and be dialed down to one or two, this is, so you sit down to write a quick email, you get lost in time and you look up an hour later, you've written an essay and maybe, uh, didn't even notice time was passing in your sense of self didn't disappear, but maybe bodily awareness vanished. And like when you pop back into consciousness, Oh crap, I got to run to the bathroom. We've all had that experience. That's micro flow. Macro flow is the other end of the spectrum. Time slows down since the self vanishes. You can have a feeling of oneness with everything out of body experiences can happen at this end of the spectrum. There's biology underneath everything I'm talking about. And we understand that biology now, but it's a very broad spectrum and people often equate the macro flow experiences that they have very sort of rarely with the experience itself. And it's actually a spectrum of experiences and learning to recognize it at the low end is one of the secrets to a making it a state more reliable and more repeatable and actually figuring out how to sort of stretch it towards that higher end experience. And as you do that, all of the kind of performance aspects, and there's a lot of them when you're in flow, the list of things that get expanded is deep. It's motivation, productivity, learning accelerates, creativity, innovation goes up, empathy, ecological awareness will increase, strength, stamina, a couple other things. So it's a big suite of performance benefits in one state, but you can, they also will sort of span that same scope. So that's one of the biggest misconceptions. So how do we get more flow? Because <laughs> I think when you're painting that picture, Yes, I've been fortunate to experience those states of flow, whether it's been in an activity I enjoy or not enjoy. And then I also think of our, our four-year-old daughter who has flow when she's doing her frozen puzzle. So <laughs> walk us through also, I'm curious. It seems like it's something that children have. Uh, and then you fast forward to adults and it's sporadic and we're probably not so good at achieving flow when we want it. it that's interesting i think we have a lot more flow than we realize on the microflow scale and we just don't recognize it but so neurobiologically when we define flow there's a lot of things we're looking at in the brain well suffice to say that children are developmentally flow prone they're more flow prone than adults it has their brain waves are closer to where flow exists uh, their prefrontal cortex, this front part of the brain isn't fully developed, not to your 25. All these things can help you get into flow. So yes, kids do seem to get into flow. It is more of a sense of like deep lost engagement. Mostly as adults, when we get into flow, it's what happened is we've mastered the skill so much that we can perform it almost automatically. And usually let's say it's writing. I can write a hundred different kinds of sentences. Flow is what happens when 50 of them come together and form something new and write like it's a bunch of automatized skills coming together. So adults obviously have more flow that way. And the farther along you get with whatever your craft is, whatever you're driving toward, to closer to its mastery, you do seem to get more flow along the way as you get better, though there are, there are reasons for that. So it's either or kids are developmentally flow prone. And you can really teach them to use the state. There's, there's been research, a lot of research done on flow and education. There's now a textbook by me, I chicks at me, I actually on flow and education that came out last year. So we're getting more and more information about learning kids and flow and its usefulness in the classroom, for example. So is it about the losing sense of time, losing sense of self versus the work we do is just so much better. 
when we're in the state of flow? Well, all those things are correlated. So let me give you an example. Time goes away in flow because time is a calculation performed all over the prefrontal cortex. And as I just mentioned, parts of this part of your brain shut down in flow. It's an efficiency exchange. Your brain says, wow, you need a lot of energy for right here, right now, focusing on the thing you're doing. So anything that's not critical to ask critical, we're going to shut down and repurpose the energy. That's sort of what's happening in the brain. Time, time is calculated a bunch of different ways in the brain, but well, mostly it's a big robust network in the prefrontal cortex. Like any network start of it goes away, the whole thing collapses, right? We lose our ability to separate past from present from future. Now think about we know one of the biggest breaks on peak performance is anxiety. Most of your anxieties are either scary things that happened in the past or scary things that could happen in the future. And if I remove past and future, stress hormones literally get flushed out of your system and we snap into what people talk about as an eternal present or a deep now to use a psychological term, right? So you get this psychological characteristic, oh, time has gone away but it's got a performative benefit, which is so has anxiety. And I'm focused really right here, right now kind of thing. So they work both ways. So what looks like kind of a metaphysical phenomenological characteristic on the surface is often peak performance reasons for it. So how do we get better at flow on a daily basis? There's a lot of different ways to answer this question. The short, real short answer is flow states have triggers. There are 22 preconditions that lead to more flow. Uh, 12 are in, will lead to individual flow, me and a flow state or you in a flow state. And then there's a group flow experience. It's a shared collective version of flow state. This could be one of the most common flow states on earth, interpersonal flow, right? You sit down with your best friend, you get lost in a conversation, two hours go by, right? And you laugh the whole time. That's interpersonal flow. That's really quite common going all the way up in scale, larger and larger groups and so forth. Anyways, the triggers are your toolkit. If you want more flow, the triggers are what you like sort of build your life around and, and really work with. Though I always say the easiest way to get more flow is we all have what's known as a primary flow activity. It's that thing you did as a kid that like immediately would drop you into flow. Maybe it was playing video games, maybe it was skateboarding, maybe it was riding your bike, maybe it was looking at nature, hanging out with dogs or animals, take your pick. Usually as we get older, get responsible, that's the thing that goes by the wayside a lot. And we sort of check out of that activity. And the funny thing about flow is it's essentially a kind of focusing skill. So it's trainable. So the more flow you get, the more flow you get, right? You get into flow skiing on Monday, it means you're gonna get into flow Wednesday at work a little easier, first of all. Second of all, flow, resets the uh, nervous system, as we talked about, flushes those stress hormones out of your system. So getting into flow on Monday is gonna calm you down. You'll perform better all week. And interestingly, this isn't our research. Well, part of it is. So creativity is massively heightened in flow. So it's innovation in all aspects of creative problem solving. It's not idea generation all the way through idea execution. It's the whole thing. And uh, work done at Harvard shows that heightened creativity will outlast the flow state by a day, maybe two. So again, you go to work on, uh, or go skiing on Monday, get into flow, and there's a 400 to 700% boost in creativity that shows up in flow, it's massive. That will stay with you for a couple of days. So the effects of just doubling down in your primary flow activity, and especially, you know, it's been a tough year for everybody. This is not the year that we, you know what I mean? That's when we parked it by the wayside and said, oh my God, it's crisis mode, and just did everything we could to hold it together. And, understandably, of course, but really 
doubling down on your primary flow activity is a bonus. And, and of course, the biggest benefit is that flow directly correlates to happiness, well-being, overall life satisfaction, and all that great stuff. So on top of all the performance benefits, there's a lot of like mood, emotional, just how, you know, flow is sort of what makes life worthwhile. And so if you can get more of it as a downstream result, life satisfaction, well-being, all these things go through the roof. So you mentioned, we, we talked about children and children being uh, a little bit better suited for flow. And this is a bigger question beyond flow, but what do we do wrong as we age? Well, it just seems like we screw things up. We lose our, so many people lose their optimism. They lose the books, The Art of the Impossible. As, as children, it's about infinite possibilities. So like, just what are we doing as we, as or what is society doing? What is culture doing? What are, what are parents doing? As we grow, well, we, we're just kind of. So let's, some of the some of this is directly addressed in the, in the opening of the book. So the book opens with motivation and motivation is a catch all term, right? Psychologists put a lot of things actually under motivation and it's really intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation, grid and goals all sort of get lumped in under this category. But the books really opens with intrinsic motivation and what the research shows is we are externally motivated. Like money will drive us, sex will drive us, desire for fame will drive us. But if you're interested in like actual performance benefits, only so far it goes up to, we need to make enough to cover our bills and have a little over leftover discretionary spending. And then money stops to work as a really big motivator. And there are five major intrinsic motivators that matter next. Curiosity, the most basic kind of intrinsic motivator, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And these are all aligned. So, and I'll cover this really quickly and then I'll answer your question. Curiosity is designed to be our basic fuel that builds into passion. Passion is designed to be attached to a cause greater than ourselves to become purpose. Once you have purpose, your body literally wants the autonomy, the freedom to pursue that purpose. And once you're pursuing that purpose, you want mastery the skills to really pursue that purpose. And once you get all that right, by the way, all five of those things are flow triggers. And we can talk about why, but the downstream effect is a lot more motivation and a lot more flow. My point is in this stack, there are eight major known causes of depression and anxiety in the world. Two of them get all the run. They get all the attention and their genetics. I can't make enough serotonin kind of thing or trauma. Something really terrible happened to me. And yet if you look at the data, genetics alone will never cause depression. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's always in combination with environmental factors. And most of the time trauma leads to post-traumatic growth, not post-traumatic stress and anxiety. The other six things that go wrong are all things about not getting our intrinsic motivation right, not getting our biology working for us. So it starts working against us, meaning one of the now remember depression and anxiety are at epidemic proportions one out of ten adults will have them will have it this year there's a suicide at once every 12 seconds record rates right what's going on one of the big things what's causing it well lack of meaningful work is one giant cause of depression what does that mean it means a job i'm not curious about a job that doesn't produce passion that doesn't align with my values or my purpose that I don't have the freedom to pursue in a way that's interesting to me and that I not it, the conditions are not that I can learn to be 
to generate mastery and thus not getting any flow. Literally, when we screw up peak performance, I always tell people is nothing more than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. The art impossible is about the fact that we are literally biologically designed to go after large challenges. We're built to go big, but the inverse, what goes wrong, turns out not going big, not trying to rise to our full potential is incredibly bad for us. And that's what, that's a lot of what you're seeing. And that leads to depression and anxiety. And so in terms of the impossible, I'll go back to the book. There's a lot, there's a lot to cover here. So the art of the impossible is about going big. Can you talk about how do we get people there in the first place? So it's like, it's, I want to get there. I want to go, be, I'm an entrepreneur. I want to go big, but this is always what, what I said at the beginning of the, the book is called the art of impossible. I spent 30 years literally studying those moments in time when the impossible became possible, right? Where stuff that we never believed was going to happen in every domain, sports, science, art, literature, culture, take your pick. That's what, that was what I looked at and across the boards, there are commonalities, but that's, these are lessons learned from people who have tackled capital I impossible. The book is really written for anybody interested in what I call small I impossible. And small I impossible is the answer to your question. Small I impossible is all that stuff we think is impossible for us. And this could be anything. When I was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio in the 70s, a blue collar steel mill town, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was four years old. And I knew that. Me wanting to be a writer in Cleveland, Ohio in the 70s was like, I woke up one morning and went, Mom, Dad, today I want to become an elf, right? I mean, nobody knew how I became a writer. It was a, there was, and what I mean by small line possible is no clear path from point A to point B and statistically bad odds of success, right? Now this could be overcoming trauma, rising out of poverty, getting paid for doing what you love is for sure and impossible. As an entrepreneur, you know that. Uh, becoming world-class at anything you do. I think for most people, when we're young, when we're 12, 13, 14, figuring out how to get our first boyfriend or girlfriend is one of the first impossibles we have to go after. And the answer to your question is after 30 years of studying people who had gone after capital I impossible, the only way you get there is small I impossible after small I impossible after small I impossible. The impossible and this kind of like high hard challenges and going is that we're all built to do this but it's a muscle that you have to use over and over. To put it really simply, long answer really short now because I've been going on, I apologize. I always say that one of the hardest things for people to understand is that human potential is invisible, especially to ourselves. And there's tremendous amounts of research on this, but the short version is that our potential is an emergent property. We only find out what we're good at, what we're capable of by stretching, by pushing our skills outside our comfort zone, using them the utmost again and again and again. And that's how we, A, start to get used to it, and B, that's how we really solve this puzzle. I, I love how you reference building the muscle. It's muscle memory, and you gotta work at it daily. And Daily. So we'll talk about, we're getting to the athletics metaphors. So the four minute mile. And like break, like just give us, the, there's so many great anecdotes in the book. Is, is that the greatest antidote in terms of what we perceived as being possible or for athletics? It's well, what's so the banister effect yes. is it's the great, well, one, it's named, right? So the banister effect is this, it's, it's worth explaining. 
So it took us forever to run the four minute mile. You have to understand that mile times dropped like a second, a decade for 70 years prior to Roger Bannister's 1954 breaking of the, of the sub four mile. And everybody thought he was going to die. There were op-eds in the New York <laughs> Times by Dr. Sag, first person to reach the four minute mile. There should be a hearse waiting for them at the finish line along with a ticker tape parade. Sounds like the New York like, Times today. Like, sounds like the New York yes, Times today. Ex- that's a, not a whole lot of stay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I still have friends who are editors there, but so I got to, I got to, no comment. But my point, Bannister does it, right? He finally does it. And what's wild is a month later, somebody breaks his record. And then three months later, I mean, by a lot. And then three months later, somebody else shatters that record within a, five years. A teenager has done it. And the question you've got to ask yourself as scientists, ask themselves, is what changed? Right? Running a sub four mile, it's still required. You've still got to run a sub four mile. The physical challenge is no different. It's just the mental frame. We built around it, right? What used to be impossible is now seen as possible and suddenly becomes a whole lot more possible. And it turns out, yes, it's about an incredibly tight coupling between your visual system and your physiology. But you basically have to be able to imagine yourself accomplishing the impossible or accomplishing anything before you actually can do it, especially on the physical side, it seems. Though I think on the cognitive side, as the research progresses more and more, we're going to find that's true too. But the point is that one of the reasons I wrote The Art of Impossible is we're all designed to go big. We all have this biology. We can all use it, right? Like that first and foremost, but I wanted people to see this stuff because I really got to come out the other end and believe that you can go big. If like you, whatever else is true at the end of the book, hopefully you get to the end and you're like, holy crap, I had no idea what I was capable of. You may never want to do anything with it, but just knowing that it's, that's a very big deal from a performance standpoint. And most people don't realize it. And the answer, you asked a question earlier that I sort of dodged a little bit, but I want to bring it back up, which is people do tend to get more pessimistic when they age. And it's not that we get, we tend to get more reality focused, but our things we care about start to mount, right? We have more to lose in weird ways and safety and security will dominate. And the interesting thing is we don't really live in the real world. We, reality is dominated. Our reality is dominated. Our perspective, everything we see and encounter is really shaped by two things. It's our fears or our goals. We are goal-directed machines. Human beings are. And once we properly set goals and give the systems, tell the system, go here, we will start getting way more information about our goals. But if we're not doing that stuff, fear will win. We'll just take in more stuff that could be possible safety and security threats. So some of what happens, I think, as we get older is we stop. Oh, you got married. Well, that was a goal. You had kids. Oh, that was a goal. Oh, you got the house. That was a goal. Right. We stopped. We hit, hit our early thresholds and we've stopped setting goals. And as a result, the system goes, well, if you don't have any more goals, I want to keep you safe and help you survive. So let's identify threats. And that's sort of one of the things that really happens to us pessimism as we age. Well, let's talk about goal setting for a moment. I think it's so interesting. On one hand, you, you got to think big, 
On the other hand, you need to be realistic. You need to set goals that you can achieve. So you, you build that confidence. Because where my head goes is the, the Stockdale paradox, the, the famous story about Admiral Stockdale, who was in prison in Vietnam and survived. I think it was over how many years? And he made a comment where the people who didn't survive were the ones who said, I'll be home by the next holiday. And the next holiday would come. And they kept on saying it and saying it. Eventually, they lost hope and they died. But he made it because he was more practical. He said, I don't know when I'm going to get out, but I'm going to get out. He didn't. So it, it's... That, that's my very short. Yeah, so, I actually hadn't thought about it in terms of the Stockdale paradox before, but you're totally right. And there's, so the reason is this. One, in general, process goals always are better than like I can. A stupid goal for me as an author, right, is I, wanna, I want this book, Art Impossible, to be a number one New York Times bestseller. I can say, hey, I'd like a number one New York Times bestseller in my lifetime, but I can't, like, if Obama decides, Michelle Obama decides to release part two of her book, right, The Weak Mind Comes Out, forget about it. Or the last time I had a book come out a year ago, literally Peter and I launched a, The Future's Faster Than You Think on the day we were in New York in the studios and there was breaking news out of China of this new disease called COVID-19. Literally, that was like, we're like sort of looking at each other. We're like, I don't think anybody's going to care about our book right now, right? You can't count that stuff. So process goals win. But with the Stockdale paradox, this is why affirmations don't work and gratitude does work. Same principle, which is when you look in the mirror and you're like, I am a millionaire, I am a millionaire, I am a millionaire. It's the same thing as being one of the prisoners saying, I'm going to be home by Christmas, I'm going to be home by Christmas, I'm going to be home by Christmas. We have built-in bullshit detectors all the time. We're great at knowing when we're lying to ourselves. And as a result, your brain goes, dude, you work at Walmart. You're not a millionaire. What are you talking about? And it's massively demotivating. It actually takes us in the other direction. But gratitude is the exact opposite. When you say, oh, I'm so happy and grateful that... My legs work this morning. The mouth hose still goes back and forth and emits sounds that make sense. Well, that shit is true, right? So you can believe in it and one that actually affects optimism and pessimism besides the point. Goals sort of work the same way. And you're right. We do. What the research shows is you need three tiers of goal setting. You need mission level goals for your life. And these are very process oriented. I want to be the greatest writer in history, right? That's It's a moving target. It's not a real thing. It's just a, it's an aim. You want to chunk those down into high hard goals. These are one to five year goals. You got to figure out what, how I, for me, three year time horizons work really well for me to set long term goals. When I try to set beyond that, it doesn't work, but you got to run the experiment with yourself over time. And then the research definitely shows you need to be able to chunk those high hard goals down into daily clear goal lists. Like how, and everything has to point in the same direction, right? So your high hard goals have to flow into your mission level goals and your clear goals, your daily goals have to flow, your high hard goals, and really don't sleep on it. For example, Gary Latham, John Locke, the fathers of sort of goal setting theory found high hard goals alone will give you an 11 to 25% boost in motivation. So that's a really big deal. So, and you can, everybody can set high hard goals. Even if you have a crappy job, let's say you have a crappy sales job that you don't like, and it's not lined with passion, purpose and whatever, but you still can get at mastery because there's something in your sales job. Maybe it's just talking to strangers that it's going to help you later with aim towards your purpose, right? Or aim towards your high hard goals. So you can re 
steer your goals even in, even when you're sort of stuck in bad circumstances. But an 11 to 25% boost in motivation to set a proper high hurdle goal, an eight-hour day is your baseline. It's like getting two free hours of work done just for proper setting goal setting. That's amazing. That's really crazy. That's a huge amount of motivation we're getting for free. So what role does personality play in all of this? Because I think it's fairly easy for some people to say, all right, I'm going big. I got my goals. I'm, I'm writing them down and I'm going for it. Watch out. And other people are saying, well, I don't know if I have time or I've never done this before. Or just talk about personality. Yeah. So there's, we live by a rule at the Flow Research Collective, which is personality doesn't scale. Biology scales. And what we sort of mean by that is, and you know this because you've been around this world a bunch, very often in this in peak performance, or it, you see it much more often in coaching or the self-help movement, somebody figures out what works for them and they teach it to other people and it's a freaking disaster. They may be great salespeople, but it never ever works or it rarely works. And the reason it doesn't work is because what works for me is almost entirely guaranteed not to work for you because key aspects of peak performance. Where are you on the introversion extroversion scale, for example? This is either genetically determined or created by early childhood experience. What's your tolerance for risk and fear in your relationship with that stuff? Again, genetics, early childhood experience. You can change those things. Used to believe we didn't think we could change them at all. Now we know that they're changeable, but they're traits and they take about five to 10 years to really start to shift in any significant way. So this is a mistake I learned the hard way early on in my career. I, I made the same mistake everybody. I learned a little about peak performance. I thought I knew what was up. I, and my, I had published books on this shit and was writing columns from diets of authority. And my friends would come to me and I would give advice, feel very important. And it was, I put two people in the hospital. I nearly caused a divorce. One of my closest friends from 20 years still hasn't talked to me. My best friend in the world didn't talk to me for four years. And I totally deserved it. I absolutely earned all of that on this mistake. Biology scales. Bio evolution shaped us, shaped our biology to perform a certain way. And that's the same in everyone. That's why we focus on neurobiology. Because if you can get it down to the neurobiology, you're down to the same shared mechanisms. And then that works. And... But you still, I always tell people, like, there are 22 flow triggers. Which ones are going to work for you, Jason? Open question. You got to run that experiment. And by the way, here's what the data seems to show. You may, what works for you at age 30 may change by age 40, may be totally different by 50, right? So these things change over time as our personality evolves and as life happens to us. So you absolutely have to conduct your own experiment. And I like two things I always tell people, if somebody starts making meaning for you, if you're feeling internal stuff and somebody is saying, it means this, run. You just turn around, run in the other direction immediately, right? That's the, those are cult leaders. We stay away from them. And if somebody says, hey, you gotta do this, I always, the joke I, I always tell people here is look, if what worked for me worked for you, then I would train you how to get into flow. Here be my recipe. Okay, I want you to go out and I want you to ski through the trees, probably by yourself, often at the edge of the resort where they're never gonna find your body if this shit goes wrong. Ski at like 40 or 50 miles an hour while listening to the Wu-Tang Clan really loud because that's what works for me. So you mentioned skiing a couple of times. What role does nature play? Nature's interesting. So, um, 
One of the big causes of depression, by the way, is lack of exposure to nature. And we also know that one of the biggest breaks on creativity is lack of exposure to nature. Nature is also, for a bunch of different reasons, packed with flow triggers. So it can significantly increases our chances of getting the flow. And the point is, we evolved with nature. We did not evolve to live inside boxes and stare at boxes. And that's sort of what we do all day. It's one, it's bad for our body physically to do, to do as much of it. And two, there's all kinds, I mean, like creativity, for example, the simplest creativity hack in the world is go look at wide vistas. When you're looking at very wide skies, peripheral vision, it actually calms you down, activates the parasympathetic nervous system. And it's because when we're intensely focused, that's when we're anxious. And we're like, if you think about a fight or flight response, you have tunnel vision, right? So when you have the opposite peripheral vision, it actually speeds up neural processing and enhances creativity. And it's just, so when I'm stuck creatively, for example, when I'm having writing problems or whatever, I will always go hike my dogs. First tool in my toolbox. Okay, just shut it down, take the dogs into the back country for a half an hour, and then come back to the problem. So adversity, grit, resilience, how, how, how do all those things play a role in our ability to accomplish the impossible? To me, it strengthens your muscle. Does. I mean, so I always say, if you want to understand that when I, peak performance does nothing more than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And the bio, there's a limited toolkit, right? And at a high level, you need the motivation to get into the game, the learning that allows you to continue to play, the creativity, especially when you're going after high, hard goals where you don't quite know how to get there, that allows you to steer, and then flow, which allows you to turbo boost the whole equation. Right. And as we said, it starts with motivation. Once you have your intrinsic motivation lined up, that's the next thing is goals, because that's how you know where to go for. It. And then once you have your goals, you have to start working on grit. There are about six different kinds of grit that peak performers tend to train. And in the beginning, especially, you need to train them all individually. And there are ways it's not it's not super difficult to train grit. We're extremely well adapted as creatures. We're humans are very gritty. Unfortunately, the only way to train grit is to push yourself beyond what you think you're capable of and do it often enough that you start to believe, oh, wow, I really am capable of this, right? You can't train grit by going out and saying, okay, normally I go for a 20-minute walk, but today I'm going to go for three hours. And tomorrow your brain goes, well, you pushed it one day, and but it's, it needs the consistency. It knows that you can push it over and over. And really, I mean... We all know how to train, like the funny thing about the brain also is it seems like the place you start is physical grit, right? Physical perseverance is the first thing you want to train. It seems to have primacy in the brain in terms of you may want to, there's cognitive grit as well and it's very important in our work life and things like that, but you want to start physically. So literally if you go to the gym and you do three sets of 10, do three sets of 11, right? And, or three sets of 12, you want just push a little bit harder at physical stuff and grit builds slowly. So it's, it's a lousy idea usually to try to like massively increase it all at once. Just go slowly and be really patient with yourself. You asked earlier where people go wrong with this stuff across the boards. We go wrong two places. We go wrong because we're impatient. We want it now. And the funny thing about peak performance is that it works like compound interest. Right, a little bit today, a little bit tomorrow, a little bit the day after, a little bit the day after, and it's 
six months to a year from now that things start really moving. You're going to see the results. And the other thing is shit's not sexy. It's just not sexy. Like these are psychological interventions. They're incredible psychological and neurobiological interventions. They're incredibly effective, but they're not as whiz bang as a new substance or a technology, state changing technology. You know what I mean? Like they don't get you laid when you talk about them in bars, right? Oh yeah. I mastered the three levels of goal setting and I properly set my clear goals for today. You know what I mean? Like it's not sexy. It's just deadly effective. So the two places people really screw up is they get impatient and they want something sexier. So go back to what could go wrong. I also think of those who experience incredible success and they seem to have everything and everything in terms of the money, the relationships, the power, yet they have a fall from great, you know, they're, they're a complete mess or the ego is just, or they're complete narcissists or I'm yeah. curious, like how much of it, I want to spend some time because I, I personally believe it's so much is about the journey as well. And the importance of pur purpose and passion, because if you're just like going, you're, you do the books because you love the books, you love what you do. And the New York, being a New York Times number one bestseller is a byproduct of doing what you love, what you do. And regardless, totally. so yeah, yeah. talk about that as well and per make, making sure you're focused on the right things. I, again, so first of all, like we know if you like there, it's one thing to make money. If it's not aligned with passion and purpose, especially as you get older, we talked about this before we, uh, got on the show, but the research shows if you're not doing what you love by around the late thirties, early forties, and meaning what you love, like what you're doing for a living, it aligns with your curiosity, passion, purpose, values, strengths, all that stuff. It really starts to erode happiness and joy, right? You really start to have problems there. So that's a real big one. You know, at the Flow Research Collective, we have very little swag. We don't, we're not really like a swag kind of company. We have one t-shirt that says, never trust the dopamine. Dopamine is an amazing chemical, right? Two thirds of Art Impossible is about how to work with dopamine, how to get more of it, how to use it for your benefit, how to use it to drive flow. All this stuff is a phenomenal reward chemical, super addictive, and it inflates the ego. And when it inflates the ego, like you want the energy. Don't ever attach emotionally to the megalomania and don't believe it. I see, so I see this, I, I work with a lot, like we, I do a course, it's the only, it's these days it's the only course I still do live anymore, it's called Flow for Writers, because I love writers, and I, as you pointed out, I would write, for, even I was write for free, if you locked me in a cave, I would write, um, I was very sick with Lyme disease. I literally could focus for 10 to 20 minutes a day, meaning I like I had a choice every day. Like I could talk to my family. I could talk to my friend. I could focus for, I chose to write. In fact, I wrote two books, neither of which have been published, both of which probably need a massive edit that are not very good while I had Lyme disease because it's how I saved my life, right? Writing is where I run to when I need to run. And I think, by the way, anybody, I say this in the book, but anybody who has found their true passion it's always your salvation, right? Your passion has to be your salvation. That's one of the ways you're sort of on message kind of thing. But I think what happens is people get addicted to the dopamine, right? They get, and it's just, it's such empty calories. It's great energy. It's great fuel and it's great fun, but it doesn't mean anything, 
right? And let me put it to you this way. Cocaine produces dopamine. It's the most addictive substance on earth. All it does is it floods your brain with uh, dopamine and blocks its reuptake. Even if you've done cocaine, you don't think to yourself, oh wow, I'm really making good decisions when I'm high on coke and I should really trust this voice in my head. You're like, oh my God, I'm really messed up on drugs. I would never trust this voice in my head, right? Or any of the other substances that people, even booze, right? Booze massively increases the amount of dopamine. Well, we, how much do we trust our decision-making when we're drunk? We don't tend to, right? Same thing. Dopamine is very useful for certain things, but it will, and it leads to narcissism. And unfortunately, success always produces dopamine, right? That's how we reward, the body rewards itself. So like, you got to enjoy it, but you can't, if you, if that becomes your thing, and if you're chasing the dopamine, it's, then that's the hedonic treadmill, and then you'll never get off and you'll never win. I think that, and the, and the other thing is this, here's the thing, here's the ultimate secret, and you'll get this immediately, Jason, it's not in the book. I've been asking this question to people for 20 years. If I ask people, tell me about the things that you've done that produce the biggest changes in your life, like the best positive results on the other side that you are proudest of, do you know what never comes up? The, oh, I just got lucky story. Oh, I won the lotto and blah, blah. That's never what happens. And even if you drill down, like somebody, oh, I got onto this train and accidentally bumped into my wife, right? That kind of story. But you drill down. It's not that they got on the train and bumped their wife that they're proud of. It's the fact that they managed to hold their marriage together for 15 years that they're proud of, right? And nobody's proud of stuff that's easy, that we don't work for the stuff that really matters is stuff we work really hard for and ultimately contentment and satisfaction and the like. Stuart Brand once said, and I think he's a really bright man, he, used, he once said that the only sustainable long-term happiness, not life satisfaction, not well-being, but happiness, moment by moment joy, is the pleasure in a job well done. And I think there's something to that over time. And the pleasure of a job well done is not a dopamine high. It's a stabler, more enduring. I can. It's actually neurochemically more associated with serotonin because it's a it's a satiated, satiated. You're sort of satiated with life feeling. And uh, anyways, so that was a long answer, a little off topic, but I think it's an important question. People don't talk about it a lot. And you can. I watch careers get destroyed. I wrote Art Impossible because I got tired of watching amazing people who could really make a dent in the universe and the world get derailed. They kept tripping over themselves. And I was just like, you know what I mean? I was like, wow, you guys are really going for it. And the world really needs you if you could only get out of your own way. And I can't solve the problems you can solve at all. But I can tell you how to stop tripping over yourself. And because there's biology here, and this is the one thing I do know here. That was one side of it. And that was what I wrote the book for. There's probably a cautionary, you know what I mean? Like in the section on creativity, there's a bunch of stuff on humility sort of tucked in there, and I think that's really important. I really try to stress that as much as possible. Otherwise, life is gonna win. So I'll, in closing, I'll go with the big question. What are the non-negotiables for anyone listening right now who wants to live a more productive, healthier, happier, fulfilled life. What are the non-negotiables? I know, I know we're all unique individuals, but if you had to generalize, what are the non-negotiables for everyone listening who wants to change their life tomorrow? It, 
I'm going to go very quickly. And then you tell me where you want me to drop down because there's positive psychology has come up with what I call the positive psychology basics. And there are six of them, three on the physical energy side, and three on the cognitive side, and they're non-negotiable. If you're interested in peak performance, you have to be doing these things. Otherwise, you can't even get into the game on the physical side. You need seven, eight hours of sleep a night. It's just what it is. You need hydration and nutrition. We know what that is. You need it. And you need actually social support. And this is on the physical side. I could go into a long explanation, but think about getting to fight with your boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, uh, brother, boss. Think about your energy levels the next day, right? You're tapped, you're sapped, big break on peak performance. So we need social support. So you need that good, meaningful contact. There has to be a ton, but a couple times a week is where I'm at. You should run your own experiments, but we need that. On the cognitive side, anxiety is a huge break on peak performance. There are three ways to go at anxiety. Mindfulness, gratitude, and exercise. The research shows you should need one of these a day. Five-minute gratitude practice, 11 to 20 minutes of mindfulness, respiration, breath work, or 20 to 40 minutes of exercise. Normally, got to do one a day during crises, times, COVID, take your pick, two a day, right? Because our anxiety is way up. On the physical side, by the way, what the research seems to show is you want to try to nail all three in a day, but you get to screw one up. A couple times a week, like you didn't get seven to eight hours of sleep, but you nailed hydration, nutrition, and you've been, you spent some really good quality time with your friends. Like we've had those days, like you go out with your friends, you stay out late, but you great social support, you show up at work the next day, and you still can sort of focus, and that's why, right? That sort of thing. Those are sort of the non-negotiables. The next thing I always tell people is start there, then double down on your primary flow activity. Is, this is always the place I start. And then the place to start is with motivation. And the whole thing we talked about, how do you turn curiosity into passion, passion into purpose? The Art of Impossible is one place. We took that portion of the book and I turned it actually into an interactive PDF. If you want to send your listeners to the passionrecipe.com, that's free. It's for everyone. That's the place to start next. Start working with your curiosity. If you're not, you know, playing those games, if you've got your intrinsic motivation lined up, what the biology says is go to goal setting. That's where you should go next. Then you start, right? So there's a way, there's a way to start working with this and with the flow stuff, primary flow activity. And then I've got another present for your listeners, flowblocker.com. We built a diagnostic. There are six major flow blockers. One thing that they're roadblocks, whatever they are. And yeah, sometimes people are prey to one or to two or two or three of them, but there's usually one big one that's just in your way. And once you get it out of the way, that alone. So like literally take the flow blocker diagnostic. That's for people I can give you these URLs. And that's this is where I'd start. These are the non-negotiables. And then go from there. If I'd add one more, I'd read read the art of impossible. I think that's probably well, non-negotiable by now. I, right. I, I, I agree. Well, well shameless self-promotion. No, I love it. Of- the, the book is great and much needed. And my only, my only last question for you is you grew up in Cleveland. How are you going to, what, what are the flow blockers that the Cleveland Browns have? You should be working with them. Although they're, they're looking good this year. They are looking good this year. <laughs> they're looking good this year. I am. I'm a huge Browns fan. I'm, I'm like, sorry. Not even, I'll like, give not you, even, I, I want to give I you a hug. I'm sorry. But, I'm sorry. Right? And I've been a Browns fan my entire life. I'm sorry. Literally we've had two winning seasons this being the second one in my entire adult life. Adversity, um, grit. I remember that game. That, Bernie Kosar. Oh, man. Oh, 
wow. Yeah, so I am actually a Cleveland Browns fan. I'm a big Baker Mayfield fan. And I. it's funny because we do some interest. Football's a very interesting flow laboratory. It's a very weird game. You because stop. Well, it's start and stop, A, but it's also pl- average play is seven seconds long. And for the first three and a half seconds to four seconds, you're a robot. And you have to be the world's best robot doing this exact thing. And then the play is going to break down. And for three seconds, you have to totally improvise at like the level of the best improv athlete ever. And it's this incredibly, and, and by the way, it's also really violent Violence. in the middle of all that. You smash right? your head. You, basketball is a better flow sport. I'm an ex-basketball that, player. That, so. no, basketball is absolutely. Uh, yeah. No, it, it is. I, that's what, football is a great flow challenge. And we've had a lot of luck. Like we have, we've worked done some work with like college football teams and we found that we can put their players into flow in practice. And as a result, injuries go down and learning goes up in practice. And so there's ways to play that way. But the actual game, certain players, like we had a problem on Cleveland with LBJ, one of the best receivers you've ever seen. He's a rhythm player. Do you know what a rhythm player is? Sure. Well, talk, I was going to ask you about rhythm. Flow. So talk yeah, about the ri- importance of rhythm and flow in sports. Well, so it's, it's an interesting question because pattern recognition is a flow trigger, right? And normally when people say that, we're talking about insight. I connect two ideas together, get a little bit of dopamine. We've all had this experience. You do a crossword puzzle, right? You fill in an answer, you get the right answer, and you get that little rush of pleasure. That's dopamine, and that's insight, pattern recognition. Now, you get the same thing from physical patterns as well. And rhythm, I'm a very, as a skier or a mountain biker, I'm very rhythmic in my motions. And if things are jarry, it doesn't, like I have to start moving in a specific way to to really find that. It's the same sort of thing. It's the same patterns. Your brain's looking for familiar patterns. Once it finds it, it can lock in. And also with guys like LBJ, they need a little dopamine right at the start, right? That's what that is when you have a rhythm shooter in basketball also, especially somebody who's really streaky. It's that you it's the hot hand thing, right? One shot goes in, maybe they got lucky, maybe whatever, right? That's just practice. Then they take a heat check. You know that your second shot is the heat check. Am I, do I have it or don't I? But statistically, the heat check is just like any other shot. It's not a special shot. You don't like... But if it goes in, at that point, you're starting to get more dopamine. And once you start to get more dopamine, brain starts to move a little bit of fa- faster. You start connecting things a little faster. It start, then it starts to actually work for you. So you have to get a little bit of the dopamine in your system. So with rhythm players, people like that, they're, make, they're screwing up their warm-ups. That's, that, you didn't warm up. If you're not in rhythm by the time you hit the field as a rhythm player, then you screwed up your warm-ups. And you know what I mean? There's like ways around that. It's just a little, it's a weirder thing to think about. I don't necessarily know if it's a good way to play football, for example, with the Browns. I think they're better without LBJ. I don't, uh, I, like, I do. I, like, I, I, as soon as he got hurt, I sort of breathed a sigh of relief. I've always thought uh, Landry was the center of the team. Now we're going into Cleveland Browns arcade football. So hopefully you're not, you, we're done with the podcast and this is just me. No, this talking. is great. We're keeping this in the podcast because it, it, right. it, it, I want to touch on really last question. I am curious from an athletics perspective, is it the individual? When, when I think of like sports that are really dependent on flow what comes to mind i'm guessing i'm like okay golf tennis 
more of the individual based sports where you don't no, have the variables of teammates and it's just no it's and because you have to even with teammates you have to be able to keep your prefrontal cortex turned off right team sports are sort of even yet harder depending on like this is where personality matters if you're really self-conscious you're a self-conscious person or if you're very emotional or very empathetic or what people think of you. Um, I'll give an example. So um, the people who couldn't play with Michael Jordan were people who cared what other people thought of them, right? If they, if that, like they could not play with Jordan because Jordan, you weren't Jordan. And if your name wasn't Scottie's Robin, you sucked. What are you kidding? And like, um, and so if you were wired that way, you couldn't play with Michael. So the personality starts to matter on that sort of stuff and how you play. It's not at certain people have a much easier time. If you're outgoing and great, I'm an introvert. I will never, ever get into flow easily on a team sport. It's not, I'm not wired for it. Skiing, right downhill mountain bike. I'm solo and I usually am better most of the time alone. Like my ideal ski day, I show up alone. I ski four runs and then I hook up with a posse of people for like five or six runs and then I go off on my own. That's like, that's how I can work best kind of thing for myself. So it's been, how are you introverted, extroverted? You know, how are you wired that way? How much do you trust your teammates? How long are you playing together? All that really matters. But some people get into like, can't get, can't low, have to go team. Um, but, and it's funny because I, so Gio Valiente is the world's leading expert on golf and golf flow. We wrote a book called golf. I work with a whole bunch of different people, um, who study golf cause it's so fast. It's hard. Everybody's in their head. Right. And it's, so it's a game where you have to stay completely out of your blah, blah, blah. And, um, caddy relationships can play a big role. There's just tons of crazy weird ass variables in golf. Baseball's that way too. Right. It start and stop long. These are really difficult games because they're almost break flow in, in some of their ways and they're designed to get you into your head. Baseball, I mean, if you're not on base or in the batter's box, if you're not, you know what I mean, you're not in the field, literally watching. It's a terrible, terrible, right? You're in your head watching. It's a terrible thing. Um, and it's why bench players are so difficult in basketball. How do you, like, how do you watch something, stay out of your head? You know what I mean? All that stuff is really tricky. And they don't, it's funny because all these sports would benefit from just simple, like emotional regulation skills, right? Here's some basic emotional regulation. I mean, I, why we don't teach this stuff to kids in school blows my mind, but certainly like why you don't teach it to, and it's fun. We do a bunch. I I've gotten to know Pearl really well. Who's, um, I, I got to know his father, George. Um, and so I've done some stuff with George, uh, on his cast and Kobe. I talked to a lot the D league Lakers. And he's really, really trying to bring more flow stuff into basketball. So you lead me to my really last question. I mean, if, if you could work with anyone in the world right now, entrepreneur, CEO, athlete, celebrity, you, you name it, where you said, wow, if I could work with this person, I, I could really make a difference. Who would that be? Meaning like I could help them or I would like to work because I want to learn from them. You, you choose. Well, I mean, I would love to learn from both Erkin and Tom Waits. Um, Aronson can do things with language 
um, that I actually can't do. I see it in some of his scripts. I'm like, holy crap, I don't know how you do it. And it's a very, it's a rhythm, he's a rhythm writer and I would just have to work with him for a very long time to uh, internalize his rhythms to figure it out. And Tom Waits is the same thing. Both of them do things with words that I can't quite do and I would love to know how to do that stuff. So there's a handful of those. There's a handful of science people who are just such badass to work with them. But as a general people, um, where I, I would like to do the most work, and I've done a lot of work here, my passion is, is in animals and biodiversity. And you know, I'm a big empathy for all advocate, meaning not just empathy for all people, but empathy for plants, animals, and ecosystems. And so I love working with environmentalists, right? Those are the people, like uh, most everybody else, you, I, and I don't train anybody. I always tell, like, you don't want me to train you. I've got, I, you know, it, when you take a class with the Flow Research Collective, you threw it with a PhD level psychologist or, or neuroscientist as your coach. Those are the people you want to work with. You don't want Stephen Kotler to train you. That's a bad idea. I'm a writer, man. I'm not like, I don't coach at all. I'm not going to, um, anyways, uh, but uh, the environmentalist would be like, find me somebody who's working at a really big level, trying to like work on mega linkages or really close loop of economies, zero to zero stuff. Um, stuff really moves me a lot. And you know, that's sort of my answer to that one. Amen. We'll close there. Stephen, thank you so much, everyone. The Art of Impossible. Jason, pleasure. Thank you. Be well.